That is the actual audio of me during my most recent trip to the gas station, where I spent just north of $53,000 to fill up my car. That figure is approximate, and that story may not entirely be true, but it feels just close enough. Because these days, when it comes to filling up your car with gasoline, you really don't have that many choices. The choices are terrible, awful, and god-awful, and that includes the rebate at Costco. When it comes to listening to a podcast, however, you have hundreds of thousands of choices, and you made the correct one by listening to the Ingle Angle. I don't really have a reason to include that clip. And don't worry, you're not going to get rickrolled. I just like doing it. I am Fort Worth Star-Telegram columnist Mac Engel, and I'm going to skip my normal rant just to jump right into the topic and the guest for this latest episode. Because for nearly every single person on Earth, the price of gasoline has become a life-altering pain in the ass. I say that because where do we put our wallets? On top of our butts. So we really feel it. So today, we're going to talk about gasoline. We're going to talk about energy. We're going to talk about money. And we're going to talk about when might all of this end? When might the price of a gallon of gasoline be less than the price of one of those overpriced Starbucks drinks? To explain all of this, I have enlisted the services of a friend who has been in the oil and gas energy and energy business for a long, long time. You may not know his name, trust his resume and his expertise. Now, I am going to try to keep this conversation apolitical and rooted in the reality of our current economic model that the world married about a hundred years ago or so when oil became a commodity that our existence cannot live without. My guest for the episode is Mr. George Young. Like I said, you may not know his name because how many people can you think of who have done well in the oil and gas industry by name? How many of them are really famous? T. Boone Pickens is one of them. God rest his soul. George is currently the CEO of Pegasus Resources here in Fort Worth, Texas. He has served as an advisor and an investor in a number of other exploration ventures. And it goes without saying, he's done pretty well for himself in this business. He's not hurting. As a side note, he also served as the executive producer of the movie 12 Mighty Orphans, which starred Luke Wilson and Martin Sheen and was released last year. This episode is a little bit longer than I normally go, and there is a lot of conversation in here, or some of it, that is a little inside baseball, but I ultimately think you will find it educational, useful, and interesting. So George, answer me this, young man, because we see, read, and hear this sort of rhetoric all the time. Does the President of the United States affect the price of a gallon of gasoline? In my opinion, the president can have, he can have some effects, but he has a limited ability to really impact gas prices. But really what he can do is, you know, ease certain regulations to increase drilling and production through the EPA taxes. He can facilitate the approval of new oil and gas development. He can release from the SBA the strategic uh, oil reserve, which he has done and continues to do, um, you know, but working with federal agencies to help allow new pipelines and old pipelines that are stalled uh, to get approval, um, that helps us uh, access refineries and export markets for like liquid natural gas, uh, what else can he do? The, the pipelines are big. Um, you know, there hadn't been a refinery built in the United States, a new one, in over 30 years. And I don't oh. think California has allowed one in closer to 50. So, you know, we have a limited amount of refining capacity, and there's nothing the president can do with that. But in regards to the SPR, well, wait a minute, stop that. What does the SBR stand for? That's the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, okay. okay? I think at one point, 
we may have close to a billion barrels in reserve in various places and underground caverns is the easiest way to think about it. And um, that's there for a national emergency, um, a global conflict like we had in World War II. Uh, we almost ran out of oil and gas in World War II, and my industry came to the rescue and drilled, <laughs> drilled baby drill so that we could fuel the war machine. So um, I think the president has authorized the release of 300 million barrels this time around. I think last fall when this price started spiking, he released a lesser amount, and it's had an effect. And that's really about the most powerful thing the president has in his tool belt. And, you know, he's releasing the 300 million, current 300 million barrel release, I think is being released over like six months. That's a guess. But that extra oil coming onto the market, although it hasn't dropped the price of gas per se, it's probably kept it from going up faster. So, George, when it comes to this particular administration, uh, when you see a gallon of gas at $5.50 or $6 in some places, what percentage is, is that on the president? It, it, it's really not his fault. Um, the only percentage, um, let's go back to why this happened. For a second. Okay, that's okay. right. Okay, yeah. Let's go back to why this happened because I'm going to give you more of a non political kind of educational view. Okay. Because um, it doesn't matter who's sitting at the White House. When you go through something like COVID, it doesn't matter who's there. It's, it's going to be bad and it's going to happen real fast. And COVID basically sent a shockwave through the industry, my industry, and the whole world. But in my industry, on April the 20th of 2020, we were sitting in my office. I had, we were on lockdown as we watched oil prices go to negative 38. Negative $38. Negative $38, meaning if you wanted to sell 110 barrels of oil out of a tank on that day, theoretically, you would have had to pay someone $138 a barrel to take it off your hands now. Did that actually happen? Probably not. I don't think anybody sold any oil on that day. George, real quick, when, when it was mega, and because you've been in the industry for as long as you have, and you've been through these ups and downs, did you buy like crazy at that point? Or were you not in a position where you could make that kind of investment? <laughs> it's funny because as CEO, really my job is, is there are a lot of different things I do, but one is to be a cheerleader. And I have a bunch of youngsters working here in their 30s and 20s who have never seen anything like this. And I reminded them, in my 40 years in the business, I've seen nine or 10 of these downturns, and they're always followed by an up, uptick. And I said, this one is of biblical proportions, y'all, and it's going to come back, and it's going to come back with a vengeance. And I made them all a bet that by April of 2021, we'd see $70 oil again. Well, I missed it by about $10 a barrel. But when it's going down like that, and it's funny you bring up, did you start buying? When you looked at the futures market, those traders are not stupid. This was a, a knee-jerk, once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. But you looked out six months out on futures, and they were still very positive. And by the time you got out a year, which is what I would have wanted to do, was give it a year to come back. There was really not a lot of, there was so much premium in the futures market that really wasn't a good way to make money, except one thing. The industry um, stocks, meaning, you know, the, the, the stocks for, you know, Pioneer and Diamondback and Exxon and um, Conoco and Chevron, they got hammered. That was where you could have made a lot of money. And I did. I made, I bought some then. I already owned a lot that was in negative territory, so I averaged down. So okay, so go back to finish what you were saying. Okay, so COVID, COVID was what I call a um, a super demand destructor. Okay, never seen one in my forty years. Anything like that? 
You call the George a super demand destructor? Destructor. destructor. Because everybody went home, Mac. You remember? Oh, absolutely. We were all stuck at home and nobody was driving. Nobody was going on vacation. And uh, we weren't using oil and gas. But to show you how resilient the market was, the worldwide demand prior to COVID hitting in March was about 100 million barrels a day, okay? When COVID hit and everybody went home, the demand dropped precipitously, but it, it hovered right around 80 million a day all during COVID. So a 20% drop in supply, okay? Well, a 20% drop in demand caused a huge drop in supply because of where the price was. People quit drilling. Nobody started, nobody completed wells they had already drilled because the price was negative just for a day. But the price was so low that it was below their basis to be able to turn a profit. So demand drops 20 million barrels a day. Rigs are idled immediately. Fracking operations stop. And we, we settle in for, okay, how long is this going to take? When's it going to come back? But just to put it in perspective, here we are two years later, and demand is exceeding now pre-COVID oil and gas levels. So not only have we come back, but we've come back with a vengeance. And the, you know, the economy's been really good until this doggone inflation bugaboo hit us. And it's, it's getting scarier and scarier, but demand is back. But then, then you throw in all this geopolitical stuff that's right. going on right now that's influencing market supply. Ukraine, Russia. We've imposed mm -hmm. sanctions against Russia, us and other countries. Uh, the Iran nuclear deal. We've, we've still got sanctions on oil production in Iran until they agreed our terms on their nuclear program. That still hadn't been resolved. China, I mean, they just locked down uh, Shanghai for about two months, which affected um, demand to a certain extent. But did you see the price of oil drop precipitously? No. There's so much demand out in the world right now that even China shutting down, say, a third of their economy briefly didn't really affect it much. Venezuela is the one nobody talks about, but, you know, it's an authoritarian regime and they have the largest reserves in the world at 300 plus billion barrels. And I don't know if they've got more than a handful of rigs running because their country's in a complete state of disarray. They don't know which way's up. OPEC, you know, what did the president do when he realized that releasing um, oil out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve wasn't going to bring gasoline prices down enough to appease the American citizens. He reaches out to Venezuela, which was on our terrorist list, I think. I mean, nobody wanted to do business with them. And to Iran to try to get them to increase production. You know, two things that were unthinkable six months earlier. And then he goes to OPEC and, you know, he's been lobbying with OPEC plus, which is a subsector of OPEC about increasing production. And that's going on right now. And there was an announcement yesterday that OPEC's going to try to ease up their production. The ugly dark secret is that most of them are already producing more than their allotment. And the only one with any spare capacity is Saudi Arabia and the president is lobbying the leadership over in Saudi Arabia to increase production. And there are a lot of us in the industry, say they're producing 10 and a half, 11 million barrels a day in the Saudis in their playbook, and that's close. And they're talking about going to 12 and a half, 13 million a day. We don't think they can sustain that. We really don't. You just don't think it's there. You don't think they have the manpower to sustain it, or you don't think the resources are there to do it? Uh, it's their biggest, baddest field is massive, but it's 
approaching 50 years old and they, they have not reinvested their profits into new capacity, into new wells at similar dynamic. That is what has happened here in the United States and worldwide. The, the biggest issue facing the future, Mac, and what, what is sobering for consumers everywhere is that whether it's the green um, movement that has taken over not only some of our politicians, but to a certain extent, the investors and the capital providers for energy and the long only investors in the stock market for oil and gas producers have put so much pressure on public oil companies to return cash flow to shareholders versus reinvesting those profits and drilling more wells and growing production or growing reserves. And they found that out starting about three years ago when Wall Street basically said, we're not going to reward you for drilling wells. We're going to reward you for paying higher dividends Mm -hmm. and doing share buybacks. Well, I've got some charts that I can get my hands on that show that the, the, the dollars spent in the last four or five years on an international basis by mostly the major oil companies across the globe is off 40-50% of the five-year average before that, which means that in Guyana and offshore Africa uh, and all these places with huge potential reserves, those dollars are no longer being spent to develop those reserves because it is so expensive. It's a whole lot easier to run out to Midland and drill a horizontal well than it is to bring on a multi hundred million barrel field offshore Nigeria, for instance. George, having gone through these and you, you use the words biblical, when would you guess that you might see some of these uh, prices start to come down to more, I guess, levels that were pre-COVID levels, like I guess $2.85. And, and as a result, the trickle down, when you go to the grocery store, you're buying a loaf of bread for $3.85 as opposed to $5.85. Okay, let's, let's, let's de-hinge. That's not a word. Let's, let's, let's make it a word. Let's disconnect okay. the price of oil to being the only driver of inflation. Um, the supply chain issues across the world are a big component of inflation. Frankly, the amount of money that was released during COVID, the unprecedented amount of money that we printed to prop up all of our citizens who were going through unprecedented hardship. And I'm not saying I was against that at all. I mean, I, I want, I don't want us, you know, looking like a third world nation, but when you print money and you don't have anything to back it up, this is what happens. And that's what we did. And um, that's, that's a tough, that's a tough uh, road to hose, so to speak. And, I saw an article, Janet Yellen finally admitted today that a year and a half ago when she said all this uh, extra money that was being released by the White House, um, you know, the the $2,000 a month for people that had lost their jobs and all, you remember all this stuff. She goes, well, we don't think it's going to have a negative impact on inflation. Well, she's finally come out and said, I misjudged it. I mean, George, how could anybody not see some of this coming? I'm, <laughs> I mean, seriously. I just, oh, I mean, it was just like, you've got to be kidding me. We're just giving away money. That has, I mean, my question is like, well, how much longer, like, when do we catch up or do we ever catch up? Yes, I think we do. And okay. so I think there is some better news on the horizon. And I'll go back to your, your question about, you know, when can we expect some relief? It's, it's, it's a guessing game, but what I personally feel like is that we are currently in a super cycle for commodities, not just oil and gas, but commodities in general, copper, uh, 
lithium, all the various um, uh, minerals that are used in making batteries for electric vehicles and, you know, and all, all of the various uh, things that need to be made to help us transition away from our major dependence on hydrocarbons. I am a, I am a fan of reducing our dependence on hydrocarbons long-term. I truly am. I don't want to ruin our, our world for my grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Um, it, it, it's a lot more complicated than let's stop producing hydrocarbons and everything will be fine. First of all, it can't happen. In order to create the, the system, well, to create the infrastructure for electric vehicles and solar and, um, and wind-powered energy, to replace hydrocarbons, guess what? You need hydrocarbons to do that. <laughs> Look at your iPhone. That iPhone, 90% of the components in that iPhone are, are made from generally oil um, products, you know, plastic. That comes from oil. You know, that's a petrochemical problem. And uh, we haven't figured out how to do that yet with, solar or with wind energy so that's just one little piece of it and you know but this supply chain is big part of inflation we've we've got we need to drill more wells and add more supply in the united states to help bring the price down the problem is we can't get casing to case wells the truckers are overworked. They're trying to get food to the markets. The two busiest ports in the world are in San Diego and Los Angeles. They don't know which way's up. They can't process it all. There are not enough trucks to get it all to the railroads to get it to the heartland where we need it. So there's this supply chain issue. There's not enough people to put another 100 rigs out in the Permian Basin. Today, we got 300 rigs running and arguably the most profitable oil and gas field in the world is in the Permian Basin of West Texas. Um, we, we can't add 100 rigs, which would make a tremendous impact. Um, the only, another reason why we can't add any rigs is because, believe it or not, at $116 oil today or whatever it is, there are still a ton of money on the sideline that is still really not willing to release it back into the EMP sector, the expiration and production for a lot of reasons. Uh, I'm not going to call it wokeism. I'm not going to point fingers, but huge institutions that historically invested in Exxon and Chevron and the, the, the smaller EMPs out in West Texas and all across the world, they have pulled their money back as a result of more than, I guess the best way to put it is political, the political margins have changed. People are go green, go green, quit investing in the nasty hydrocarbons. So believe it or not, you listen to Scott Sheffield over at Pioneer. He'll tell you that we're undercapitalized right now in the oil and gas industry. So we need capital to come back. We need the stock owners and the, the big institutions that support these stocks to lighten up on, oh, you have to return money back to us or we're going to dump your stock again. They've got to play ball and say, okay, we need some growth. We've got to get gasoline prices back down. Well, the only way gas prices are going to come down is when supply starts to exceed demand. Okay. We're in a supply demand conundrum right now. Demand is still outstripping supply. And we're running out of places to add more supply. The whole Russia thing is a problem. The whole OPEC thing is a problem. Having Venezuela on the sidelines is a problem. Here's a, here's a, here's a fun fact for you. Um, our president suggested that we stop exporting any of our crude oil to other countries. 
which we started doing in the previous administration. And briefly, we were actually, we were under a new environment where we were actually producing enough oil to where we were not dependent on imports like we had been for most of my life and your life. And as a result, he's saying, well, we'll just stop exporting and we'll have all that oil here and then we'll have more supply and we'll be able to bring the cost of gasoline down. And no, it doesn't work that way. Most of the refineries, like I said earlier, there hadn't been an oil refinery built in over 30 years that I'm aware of, okay? Most of the refining capacity in the United States is on the Gulf Coast. Those refineries were designed and tricked out to handle heavier crude grades, like what we get from Venezuela. For years and years, we got Venezuelan heavy crude, Mexican heavy crude, and usually a good mixture of Middle Eastern heavy crude. What we produce out in West Texas is a light sweet crude. They produce a heavier sour crude. Sour means it has a high sulfur content. So those refineries. Which one's real quick, George? Which one's more valuable of the two? Which one's more valuable? The light sweet crude, it depends. It's probably more valuable right now. And here's why. Um, They have figured out that they can blend since they're getting so little heavy crude in now because Venezuela's off the market. Um, that they can blend the lighter, the WTI, if you look that up. So what is WTI? That's short for West Texas Intermediate, which is a crude oil, and it is a specific grade of crude oil and one of the three benchmarks in oil pricing, along with Brent and Dubai crude. WTI is known as a light sweet oil because it contains... 0.24% and 3.4% sulfur, making it sweet and has a low density, making it light. That is according to the website Investopedia. Is um, generally sells at a premium to the heavier grades of crude because it's easier to refine into definitely oil and refined products in the United States. It's the, just, it's the uh, Defense Department. It's our military. That's a hard one to really grasp, but they go through as much as any other industry. If you, you'd have to call them an industry, which they're not. But if you set them over on the side, they're a huge consumer. And they're a government, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's, the, you, it's the Air Force, Marines, and Navy, and... Um, you know, they're going through a ton of Jet A every day, flying airplanes all around the world. And jet fuel is one of the big, big parts of our refining structure. And so when things went crazy and the airplanes quit flying during COVID, I mean, there was no need for jet fuel. I mean, it was, it was crazy. So the refineries had to pull back. Nobody was using diesel. Nobody was driving their cars. So everybody went to 90% capacity, 80% capacity, 70% capacity. Now they're running as fast and hard as they can. And they're still not getting it done. So here's how the price comes down. Demand drops, which could be resolution of the Ukraine-Russia conflict and lifting of sanctions against Russia could have a big impact on that. The public oil producers get the handcuffs removed um, and more capital comes into the industry and they're able to reinvest profits into adding new supply. And another big mover could be the reemergence of production in Venezuela. And, you know, they have an authoritarian regime down there. Nobody trusts them. Um, You know, it's I just don't see it happening in Venezuela. I really don't. So for, so for for like 40 or 50 years, I guess really since the late 60s. So go back to Nixon, Carter-ish. You continually hear politicians say, we've got to do more to decrease every politician to, to decrease our dependence on foreign energy. 
usually they just go out and say foreign oil. Right. And now, occasionally, I have read things, and you're mentioning the previous administration, I have read things that say, no, the United States is not really dependent on foreign oil. And what you're saying is between Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, it sounds like the United States is still very much dependent on foreign oil. Are we? Yes, absolutely. And and I told you why. Yep. Because our refining capabilities are directly proportionate to the type crudes that we have lived on since Nixon was in the White House. Um, President Trump, we don't need to go into all the things about President Trump. <laughs> but one thing he was really excited about was trying to get us less dependent on foreign crude. And to a certain extent, he it wasn't he didn't really do anything other than some policy changes, but we managed, we were producing something like 13 million barrels a day. My memory's going, Mac, but we were producing, we're now producing a million and a half barrels a day less than when COVID hit. But when we were up there real high, we had enough oil and gas to be more dependent on our own oil and gas than when I say gas, I'm saying natural gas, than, than imported. We were producing more than we were imported. Okay. So when they say you're not dependent for years and years, if we, if we imported 50 million barrels a day, which was not what we were doing, uh, or we produced 10 and we were very dependent, right? So those numbers aren't right, but just to give you an idea, Mm -hmm. but when those numbers reach equilibrium, that's when you can say that you have less dependence on foreign oil. Does the United States, and if we wanted, given the way everything is structured now, if the United States wanted to, if they wanted to, could we be energy independent? Are the resources there that it could be done? Or between access in the Gulf, West Texas, you know, forget it. Let's just make it North America. Let's just make it because that's a that's a that's a good partner. Is, is are the resources there that if we wanted to, and said no, nope, we're going to do this on our own. We don't need Russia. We don't need the Middle East. We don't need South America. We don't need Africa. Could we do it? I don't think so, Mac. Oh. I really don't. I, I I don't. In this environment right now, um, we're at about eighty percent of the rigs running in the Permian, I think we were up around 400 in 2016, 17, and we're at 300 today. And frankly, we'll add a few rigs every other month and then drop a few. I just don't see it. So basically what you're describing to me is you, the United States, depending on the administration, and this may be an obvious statement, but basically we want, we want the benefits of cheap oil we just don't want to do it here ourselves. And if we do it, then we don't want to talk about it. It's kind of like, I want a steak, but I really don't want to see how that bull just got slaughtered. But by that cat, that's a good that point. Just got that's a good way to look at it. And but here's another one that people you never hear the talking heads on TV, especially on the left, ever bring this up when <laughs> climate change comes up. Because right. I am, hey, I'm all for cleaning up the environment. The two biggest offenders for releasing carbon into the atmosphere on the planet are China and India. In the United States, in our industry, the oil and gas industry, has systematically, and are to a certain extent, our federal regulations have systematically reduced our dependence on heavy sulfur-laden coal to run our power plants. And we've been gradually switching over (laughs) to natural gas. I don't know if you've noticed it. You will this winter. Natural gas has hit $8 an MCF. It has been hovering around $1.75 to $2 for the last seven years. Okay. It's up 400%. And part of that is because the EU and Germany and the Brits and all the, the NATO countries that have been 
um, they've been cut off from the Russia natural gas supply, are desperately setting up deals with the United States to import liquid natural gas, okay? So there again, supply demand. The supply of natural gas, we have more natural gas available. Maybe, maybe there's a couple of countries in the world that have more than us, but we got a ton. And if we can switch every power plant that's on coal, um, now there are a few uh, West Virginia congressional and senatorial uh, leaders that won't like this, but <laughs> if we switch them all over to natural gas, it burns cleaner, less carbon footprint, and frankly, because the price has gone up so much, coal is cheaper. But you know who's burning all the coal? It's India and China. So the U.S. and the Paris Accords, and we try to do all this stuff and cut carbon output and our footprint, but they keep doing it and they keep dumping this stuff into the environment and there's no governor on them. Nobody talks about that they don't play by the same rules that we do from the Paris Accords. Well, do we not talk about it because they produce all of these disposable, and I'm not necessarily talking about India as much as I am Southeast Asia, well, China, Southeast Asia. Do we not talk about it because one, there's nothing we can do about it. And two, we are heavily dependent on their, what essentially amounts to slave wages to produce disposable products that we are somewhat addicted to. Number one, there's, there really is nothing we can do about it. We, we flexed against China before, and what has that gotten us? Nothing. 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 India is a whole new game. You know, those two right now are just loving this whole situation because they're buying that Russian crude that has, you know, we, we, uh, we forbid any Russian crude hitting any ports in the United States, guess where that oil is going? It's going to India and Russia at about a 40% discount. And they They're don't care. Steal. They're going, these idiots, meaning <laughs> us, right. these idiots, they're just helping our economy. Number two, yeah, we are. I mean, China and India, for example, Taiwan, um, South Korea produce a tremendous amount of exports that we need, right? And if we go in there and stir the pot and mess that up, are we going to start making Samsung TVs tomorrow in, in Tyler, Texas? Doubtful. Um, no, we could. We could, but they'd be, instead of $250 or $185, it'd be <laughs> $785. Do you remember the Curtis Mathis TV, Mac? You're old enough to remember. Yeah, Curtis vaguely. Mathis. Yeah, sure. Vaguely. They were those big console yeah, TVs right. that our yeah. grandparents had with a record player. <laughs> Yeah, those were the most expensive TVs ever made in the history of mankind. And they were made right here in the United States. And then the Japanese and the, uh, the Chinese and everybody else realized, hmm, uh, I bet we can put them out of business and it took them about two years. So, Okay, so um, talk to me about this. Okay. I had a friend of mine who worked for an energy company in Houston. He said, there is no bigger suckers PR play than wind farms. He said yeah. wind farms produce uh, a fraction of a decimal point of a nothing for the overall energy consumption for a regular day in the United States. So I said, so why do it? And they said, basically because it's good PR for the energy company. And the second reason they do it. Well, for, is that true? I'm not going to say it's true. I'm not going to get out on that limb because okay. I, I feel a, a saw right behind me. But I will, <laughs> say, I, I will say this. The subsidies provided by the American government for wind farms makes it possible for them to, to put the CapEx required to put in these huge wind farms because they get subsidized don't get don't get the milk producers mad at me but the milk producers in the u.s get a little subsidy as well and but the the the, the wind and to a certain extent the solar they they get subsidies hey guess what i don't, I don't get any subsidies for producing more oil and gas 
Nobody wants to give us anything. Why don't you put up a wind farm in your backyard and ask for You can. Well, you want what's stopping you from doing that and saying, hey, look, I have a wind farm in my backyard. Yeah, I should get a tax break. Yeah, really, get a tax break so you can power your toilet and you can get a $150,000 tax break. Well, I have solar panels on the roof of my home. No way. And Yeah, and it cuts my heating and electric bill by about two-thirds, believe it or not. So... I'm a believer, you know, I, I, uh, I'm in this industry, but I'm open to things that, that help, you know, not only our climate structure, but help our, our dependence on foreign oil. And we, to put, to, to really sum it up, the best way to do this is to have a energy czar. And I frankly don't know who the president's, um, head of the EPA is and who the Secretary of Energy is. I, 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 have, I, I couldn't tell you their names, but when I hear some of the sound bites, I cringe because I really don't think they understand what they're talking about. And that's just my opinion. But I know they mean well, and I know their heart's in it, but I think the administration gets bad advice from a predominantly green-leaning staff. And I think that's why it's just, it's, we're two years past COVID and the administration is finally starting to loosen the reins a little bit. And we need solar and wind to be competitive. Right now they're not. EVs, um, you know, I would love for somebody to put a picture of what one of these giant holes in the ground and let's just pick a, a country down in South America and Bolivia, what it looks like to mine enough lithium to make 10 batteries for Elon Musk. You, you would be horrified to see the, 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 the damage being done to the economy to produce that raw material to go into those batteries. And, um, recharging okay here's a great one that they never talk about on tv oh we need you know electric um charging stations all along the interstates and we've got it well how are they charging those batteries mac they're charging them with energy produced by natural gas crude oil and to a certain extent some solar and wind but 90 percent of it's coming from hard hydrocarbons so 90%. here's the conundrum, and we've got to just do it a little slower. Let's don't knee jerk. Let's wean ourselves off of natural gas, hopefully about 20 years after I'm gone. Uh, you know, that's a pretty good time frame. That's how long it's going to take. It ain't going to be done in five years. I see two more questions. I'll let you sure. go. Is there really any way? given the amount of people who are now living on this planet who are uh, consumers of products and an industry that produces them in a way that aren't necessarily maybe great for the environment. This is not some green thing. This is more of a pragmatic thing of can we really build things and be eco build things and consume things and be eco-friendly, or as long as we're going to be here, there's going to be some damage to to our house, so to speak. Sure. We can become more eco-friendly. You know, I operated as a driller for 35 years and just recently have have predominantly uh, bought minerals and royalties under producing wells in the Permian Basin. That's our new focus now. I don't at this point today, I don't operate any wells anymore, but I did it forever. And um, so I know that business like the back of my hand. And I, I've watched our industry take the bull by the horns and start working on how can we do it cleaner. And I've seen it happen. We get no credit for it. Nobody cares. They don't want to believe it. It's just, no, no, no. These people are just, you know, we're getting rich on the backs of the American consumers paying six fifty for gas in California. Well, you know, 
it just doesn't work that way. We can become more eco-friendly over time. I've seen us doing it. I mean, we we are we are we are um, adhering now to no flare um, orders coming out of the EPA. Violators are getting fined ten thousand dollars a day. It hurts. People are falling in line. You know, um, natural gas is the secret sauce. When you burn a thousand BTU of natural gas, you know, just think about your stove. What what are you putting into the environment? A small amount um, of harmful products are going in there. But if you burn a barrel of the equivalent of fuel oil, you're putting 10 times the amount of impurities into the environment. So if we can continue this long-term switch to natural gas, we have a tremendous amount of natural gas. You've seen buses running up and down here in Fort Worth that are burning natural gas. Remember when all that started is when, and I was involved in it, when we started drilling the Barnett Shale under Fort Worth in 2001, 2002. That's when the city started converting trucks to natural gas and they worked just fine. What about if, what about all these big trucks running up and down the, the interstates? How about getting more of them off on natural gas versus diesel? That'll certainly help the environment. So yeah, we can do it, but we can't we can't completely wipe out the A need to use hydrocarbons for the foreseeable future and B that yeah, they're gonna be messy. But if we can lower the percentage of messy, that means we're doing better, right? <laughs> no, and I think you're right. I, I, I'm like I said, I'm a little bit of a pragmatist about some of this, which is this is the system that we have, and we have to kind of play with, kind of try to improve it with where we are. And that some of these dramatic changes that I do see people propose, I'm like, that's just not feasible. That's not that's not going to happen. That's my own feeling about it. Uh, last question I want to ask you: You've been in oil and gas forever. I always like to ask oil and gas guys this question, George. In your long career, what's the biggest bust that you had what's what's the one project that you really went in all in everybody's going we're going to just everybody's getting paid everybody's got planes helicopters everything what's the big one that you had and then you went down there and it was nothing probably the one that hurts the most is because i had partners in there with me but i had a lot of my money was a we tried to extend the bakken play from North Dakota, where it was really good, over into Montana. And um, there's some great Bakken production in eastern Montana. But there was a huge um, reservation, an Indian reservation of the Asaban Sioux, um, called the Fort Peck Reservation at Wolf Point, Montana, kind of mid-central to eastern Montana. And... I was convinced that the Bakken, looking at old logs, and there was a very small amount of, of, um, of data available because there hadn't been much drilling on the reservation, but there'd been one or two big strikes there out of different zones. But I was convinced and put together about 150,000 acres and tried to find partners it was a huge bust and we didn't get a, we didn't make a dime and we spent a lot of money. We drilled a couple of wells and it didn't work. So pound for pound, that was probably my, one of my bigger losses, but to put it in perspective, you know, people will ask me, well, how's business? And I'll go, well, right now it's as good as it gets. And in my 40 years, you know, here's what generally happens. Times get good. I remember in 1984, I was three, four years in the business and price of oil was around 40. And within a year and a half, it was $7. And I watched my family company go from 200 employees to 50 on one day. And it was that 85 was just, it was awful. I remember we called it Black Thursday. It was just awful and but we recovered and the price has done this so many different times you can look at charts of the highs and the lows 
generally what happens, like right now, if this was in a normal environment and not this super cycle that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. we would drill our way back to $40 oil in a year. A year. That's just our, that's what we do. We, every time in the last 40 years that I've seen crude oil prices, they've been to a hundred before several times, but what happened? We added more rigs, increased supply, demand didn't move, price went back down, gasoline got back under $2, everybody's happy except us. <laughs> so this time, we can't drill our way to $40 oil. The only thing that's going to drill us back into the 40s or 50s or get our price back to there is what I call that, that huge demand destructor. Because I think people are going to have to understand Hopefully we can get prices in the four range, four to five, you know, get crude oil back under a hundred when some of these things happen like resolution in Ukraine and God forbid Venezuela figures out how to start producing again. And our, our, our American producers are given the go ahead by their investors and by the, the fed to produce more. Maybe we can get a stable $70, $80 oil price, which will be plenty good for our industry to make money and will bring natural or bring gasoline prices down dramatically and um, three, three something dollars. But I think your, your listeners who are consumers, just like me, we've got to resign ourselves that we're in this thing for the long haul and, $2 gasoline prices probably aren't going to happen again. That's reality. I'm, my opinion, just my opinion, but that's that's where I stand, my friend. George, I really appreciate your time. I know you're busy and you gave me an hour and I didn't mean to do that, but this was fascinating. Thank you very, very much. I, I love doing it, my friend, and anytime I'm here, all right? Okay, so that's the show. What have we learned, kids? The price of a gallon of gas is affected by a variety of factors that are dictated by our immediate demands, money, rather than our long-term needs, which is the overall condition of our home, i.e. the world. And that's just where we are. I am not smart enough to offer a practical solution because I'm not sure one really exists. But I do know this. Had Smokey and the Bandit tried to get that beer from Texarkana today, it would have cost them $1.2 million.